Welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast, a ministry of the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International. We seek to encourage and inform pastors on modern day topics from a biblical perspective. Our mission is to bring together like-minded Baptists to collaborate in glorifying God through fulfilling the Great Commission. All right, well, welcome everybody. It's Don Johnson again for the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Today's uh, guest is uh, returning to us. He uh, talked to us last year from an article he wrote at that time in a frontline issue on medical ethics. And uh, this time it's David DeBrain from uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church there. And David and I had really a great conversation. Uh, actually, David wrote two articles for this current issue of uh, Frontline. The issue of Frontline is devoted to the theme, the God of beauty. Uh, we heard already from the uh, editor, the coordinating editor of this issue, Mark Herbster, and he helped us set up for the, basically the discussion of beauty as a uh, philosophical concept. Uh, and we're going to get into some of the details of this with David because his article, or his first of his two articles was called um, the, the definition, or the, excuse me, not the definition, the meaning of beauty. So David uh, has uh, given us sort of an introduction to the concept. The article itself is quite helpful, but I really enjoyed the discussion with David. And uh, since he wrote two articles, we had a longer discussion than normal, and I split it into two parts. His second part won't come up until uh, a couple weeks from now, uh, because I'm going to we're trying to move the, uh, the interviews somewhat in the order in which the articles appear in the magazine. So uh, David's article, the first one, is sort of starts the whole thing off, the meaning of beauty. And uh, I think that you'll find it really helpful. Uh, again, we're, we're trying to co- uh, wrestle with this idea of beauty. Is it something subjective? In other words, what I feel, what I like, or is it? Is there an objective standard, something outside myself that can inform me about what truly is beautiful? Because uh, if it's simply what I like, you know, uh, my judgment, my judgment can be fallible. My tastes can be poorly educated. Uh, or, you know, if we want to use the metaphor of taste, you know, I like ice cream, <laughs> you know, but it's probably not absolutely the best thing for me. So when it comes to beauty, to art, to, and by art, we mean the big thing. We mean music, we mean painting, sculpture, you know, books, uh, poetry, photography. There's so many things that come into this. And even just those architecture, uh, things like in our world that are expressions of, uh, that thing we call beauty. It's a little hard to get hold of because, you know, when we're talking about truth, you know, we can get hold of that. We're talking about things that are good. We can get hold of that pretty well, I think, uh, especially from a biblical standpoint. But understanding beauty from a biblical standpoint is a little more challenging. So that's what David's going to talk to us about, and I think you'll enjoy the conversation. But now I have to do the com- commercial, <laughs> as always. So uh, I want to remind you to subscribe to the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you haven't already, uh, you won't miss an uh, episode that way, hopefully. Uh, and uh, in addition, I would like to encourage you to become a paying subscriber. A paying subscriber will get access to David's article uh, 
uh, right away on our Substack site. And if you become a yearly subscriber, you will also receive uh, uh, the Frontline magazine uh, direct in your mailbox. So those are the two benefits in that respect of subscribing in this method. Uh, we think it's a good thing to subscribe to Frontline magazine just by itself, but we hope that you'll uh, you'll also consider it because of uh, uh, your love for what we're doing. We think we're the Lord has given us a great ministry. There's so many uh, wonderful things that are. Uh, that our chaplains, for example, are doing, and then uh, in the broader ministry of the FBF Fellowship, as we try to draw like-minded Christians together and rally them to the truth of the Word of God and to living according to the Scriptures, uh, I think that these things are very useful and helpful, and your support helps us accomplish these goals. So, uh, without any further ado, then, I'll quit the commercial, and we'll get into the uh, interview with David DeBrain, the, uh, the first interview of uh, this session. Uh, as I said, we'll have a second one coming up in a few weeks. All right, here here's my conversation with David. All right, well, welcome to the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Our guest today is Pastor David DeBrain. DeBrain? DeBrain, right? Is that right? That's right. Mm-hmm. I keep trying to get these names right. We have all kinds, we have Chinese, Nigerian, all kinds of different ones coming to our church, and man, oh man, are the names tough. <laughs> yep. Anyway, so uh, now David is the pastor of New Covenant Baptist Church in his hometown of Johannesburg, South Africa. So so we're glad to welcome him. We spoke to him uh, earlier this year on uh, when he wrote another article in an earlier edition, and uh, that was on uh, the ethics for Christians using reproductive technologies. So uh, that's in our episode archives, if folks want to look there. So today we are talking about a more congenial topic, the topic of beauty. So I think that's probably a little more, you know, uh, interesting perhaps. But it can be very philosophical. So what we're trying to do, uh, we're trying, there is, it is philosophical, but we want to bring it down to practical level for our readers, listeners, and uh because I think there are some important things to learn from this discussion. All right. Um, so you wrote two articles for us. And we uh, the first one is The Meaning of Beauty. The second is The Story of Beauty in Church History. So welcome, David, again. It's good to talk to you again. And uh, so so let's start with The Meaning of Beauty. You can uh, That'll be the, um, the beginning one. And uh, you mentioned that beauty is a topic of discussion in philosophy, but that then pointed out that the Bible addresses beauty as well. You said biblical revelation is always the key for understanding anything about the world. So could you expand on that thought, uh, maybe in general and then in particular with respect yeah, to Yeah, well, as believers, we look at God's word as the filter, the window that we look at reality through. It explains all things to us. So when we think about anything, whether it be truth or goodness or beauty, these are what we call ultimate concepts, or some people call them transcendentals. They are essentially invisible, but we still regard them as realities. And they've been a topic of discussion, obviously for religion, but even for what we might call non-religious philosophy. And with that, 
there's been lots of development, lots of thinking about what is beauty, uh, what is the beautiful. And we want to decide, is it okay for us to look at these philosophers, to read what they've said? Is this, uh, are we betraying God's word when we do so? And my answer is no, as long as we understand that God's word is the final judge of all opinions. So everything comes back to God's word. God's word gives us the grid. It gives us the final verdict. It gives us the interpretive key. So we can glean from all sorts of philosophers from all the ages. But in the end, what we want to do is bring it back to God's word and say, does this accord with God's word? Does it perhaps fill out something that God's word isn't addressing without contradicting God's word? Uh, or does it flatly give us a totally different view of reality? So really what we want to say is believers uh, are free to use philosophy and intellectual history and all sorts of discussion about beauty. But in the end, God's word is our absolute and final authority. Right, that's right. And um, I'm actually, it's funny, I picked up a book by Roger Olson called, uh, let me just see what it, The, the Essentials of Christian Thought. And I had uh, listened to his uh, discussion of this on, uh, he actually gave some lectures that were recorded and they're available on Audible. And I was so interested in what he had to say, I bought the book. And But he, he's saying that basically what the Bible has an implicit underlying philosophy and and so that's what that's what it, we uh as you say evaluate all thought uh by that in that grid uh, so uh sort of uh, you describe uh various uh theories of beauty uh from the human perspectives uh especially of the past the theological perspectives so uh, you gave uh, basically three uh, there were three theories, and, and when we talk about these theories, there's, there's there's probably a whole range within each category. Uh, so, but I think that we should sort of define, talk about them here. In your article, you define them, you know, briefly. But maybe we can just cover some basics here. So, uh, talk first of all about classical theories. Yeah. So the classical theory goes back to the classical era of Greece. Uh, and we really are talking there about Plato. He's the big name. Uh, he's the one who really writes a lot about it. He gets some of his theories from Pythagoras. And in the classical thinking, beauty is essentially harmony. It's uh, the proportion of parts to the whole. It's symmetry. Uh, so the Greeks saw this kind of harmony and this proportion. They saw it in visual things. They saw it in geometry. They saw it in... Uh, even in music. And to them, these proportions, which they often noticed were exactly mathematical, seem to represent this universal cosmic principle, uh, which they called the kalos, the, the beautiful, the good. Uh, this is a, a word which comes into the New Testament. And for Plato, uh, the good and the beautiful are not really two separate ideas. They represent the ultimate of excellence, the ultimate of order, of proportion, of loveliness, of beauty. So in the classical theory, there's a huge amount of emphasis on symmetry and harmony. 
And that theory never really goes away. It's, it's, it remains in some form or another, even till the present day. So that, that's really your, your classical theory. Right. All right. So then the next one is transcendental. Yeah. Theories. Again, by transcendental, we mean something like ultimate theories. So we talk about the triad of transcendentals, which is truth, goodness, and beauty. The, the true, the good, the beautiful. So for some people, they see that triad is interconnected and they would say, you know, these are in some ways forms of each other or they're overlapping circles. So the beautiful is um, all that is true and all that is good, or it's the uh, the goodness of truth uh, or the truth of goodness. So they would see beauty as, as not really a, a separate idea as much as, uh, some way in which these ultimates of truth and goodness manifest. So in other words, if truth is reality and goodness is ethics or moral goodness, then beauty is uh, ultimate reality in its most moral form or something like that. Um, this is probably the most abstract way of thinking about beauty. It's hard to envision what we mean when we talk about these things. But that's just the nature of, of the problem, right? Beauty is a very abstract idea. Um, it's not very concrete. It's difficult for us to get our minds around what we're talking about. We, we like to deal in particulars. And this is really up that ladder of abstraction to where we are now dealing with some of the hardest things to get our minds around. Um, the, the next theory then is, is, is the subjective theory, which is, um, obviously very popular today and that's the idea is that beauty is really our pleasure in an object so if an object is pleasurable to me or an experience or uh, an idea even then that object or that experience has beauty to me in some ways then beauty just becomes a synonym for pleasure or for my like for the thing um and so, you know, in an era now where beauty is in the eye of the beholder, for many people, this is really the only theory of true of beauty, that uh, beauty is entirely our response to certain qualities in objects. It doesn't really refer to anything outside of ourselves. Um, and, and of course, there is some truth to this. As Christians, we are going to react negatively against what sounds relativistic, and, and so we should. But we should also acknowledge that there is real truth in saying that in order for something to be beautiful, there does need to be a beholder. There needs to be an observer as part of the entire experience of beauty. It's not um, if we if there was a universe with no persons, we can't imagine such a thing. But if there were, would we say anything was beautiful? Um, and and the answer would would probably have to be no because. Beauty does involve observation, perception, experience, and enjoyment. So it's not an entirely uh, useless uh, theory. It, it has plenty of truth that comes into our discussion of beauty. So that's the subjective theories, yeah. Yeah, I think that's where, I mean, there, there is confusion. And like you say, with the abstractions and the transcendental ideas, it's a little hard to wrap our heads around all of that, except if you think about truth, I think most people can see that there is an absolute truth outside of ourselves that 
that we, you know, we can, we can sort of get that idea and we can also get the idea that there is something that is truly good outside of ourselves. Maybe we even will acknowledge in ourselves, we're all sinners. We aren't the truly good, but there is a true goodness, which of course is God, uh, ultimately. And so, so if we can think of the fact that there is also, uh, a concept that is beautiful, that is the, the attractiveness of holiness and goodness and truth, then maybe we can wrap our heads around that. Right. Little, in that way. Yeah. And I would say ourselves. generally evangelical or conservative believers have understood the idea of objective truth. They've understood that there has to be absolute truth that is not person relative. They've un even understood absolute goodness. They've understood that morality and ethics are not something we make up or just relative to the situation. God's word, God's law defines good and evil in spite of me. Uh, but where we haven't done as well is in the area of beauty, because then we've begun to think, well, there's no such thing as objective beauty. There could be no beauty outside of us. It is entirely an internal phenomenon. And so evangelicals take this triad and we split it up and we accept the first two and reject the third. Uh, and we regard beauty as something uh, entirely in the eye of the beholder, something entirely relative based on personal preference. And there's historical reasons why that's taken place. But uh, I do believe that when Christians do that, they are actually rejecting or at least uh, failing to recognize truths that are already in Scripture, that beauty is something objective. It's um, outside of us. It's not simply a matter of my own pleasure. My own pleasure comes into it. My, my uh, recognition of it is a part of it. But it's not the whole story. In fact, that's more a story about me than about beauty. If I don't recognize what is beautiful, that's not a reflection on the beautiful. That's a reflection on me. And that we get straight out of Philippians 1, where Paul says, I, I pray that your love may grow in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent. And there Paul clearly recognizes that excellence is something that exists, uh, whether or not I see it, that I need to grow into it and come to a place of discerning it. But it exists. Uh, the things that are excellent is a standard outside of me. It's something objective. Yeah, that's that's good. And I do I do think I, I wonder uh, those who are listening to us are, how they will respond to this, because I spent uh, uh, this morning already. I spent uh, some time talking to Scott Angel about this and uh, you are echoing the same uh, basic ideas. And, the, you know, the, we haven't thought much about this. And the other thing that I was thinking as you're talking there, like we, we have we have uh, probably largely absorbed the idea that beauty is relative but now in the postmodern world a lot of people think truth is relative so you know there's and so we have uh you know that's a that's taking this relativism to the to its logical conclusion that you know it's all up to me i'm yeah. god basically is what they 
what the right. position is. Well, that you know, the Enlightenment kind of began eating away at ultimate realities, and and really began with beauty because it's it's in the 18th century that uh, the whole discipline of aesthetics even develops. Before that, uh, beauty is just part and parcel of the good and of the ultimate. Finally, it's it's in the 18th century as European philosophy becomes more anthropological, more centered on the self and more psychological. Beauty begins to be considered to be more of a, uh, a psychological phenomenon. And, and it's Baumgarten who actually coins the term aesthetics. So from there, we, we, we get this increasing sense that beauty is something that belongs in the realm of mere perception mere psychological experience. It's not long before morality starts to become uh, situational and dependent on the individual until we get to true postmodernism in, in the 20th century where uh, truth is entirely a construct, a construct of existential existence. And, you know, Christians, I think, have typically responded a little too late to each of these uh, denials and each of these, uh, you know, um, encroachments upon Christian truth. Long ago, Christians should have gone towards the battle and said, no, no, if you say there's no beauty, then there's no glory. And if there's no glory of God, then we don't have really the centerpiece of our Bible. We believe our God is glorious and beautiful. And therefore, we're not going to surrender this concept of beauty, however many difficulties you give us about the idea we still believe it's central to the truth so yeah now we're left on this tiny little floating iceberg of uh, we still stand for truth but we've surrendered a whole bunch of other ideas to the enlightenment that never should have been given up that's a very good point so uh let's uh, move on now or not move on there was one more thing in your sort of as you're opening up this topic you talked about theological theories of beauty. Yeah. So maybe we could address that. So our that theological theories in the end are the, the, the intuition that most Christians have had that beauty in some ways it terminates on God, that it's either the glory of God or it is the attributes of God. Some would say beauty is being, and therefore since God is the ground of being or existence, therefore beauty equals God. This was very much the idea in, in medieval Christianity. Um, some would say it's, it's, the, it's the harmony of the Trinity, uh, God's love for God, God's uh, dwelling with himself in perfect harmony, that that would be the ground of beauty. But really what it, all of these theories are saying is that if beauty is an ultimate then it can only find its ultimacy in God himself. It's not a standard higher than God to which God conforms, just like truth is ultimately God. He is the truth, So in the, and he is the good, so he is also the beautiful. Um, and I think fundamentally we'd agree with that. We'd say beauty must ultimately rest in God. Right. Right. That's that. That I think is very good. And I think uh, as Christians, we we certainly that our hearts respond to that notion now. Uh, and, and as you describe each of these things, uh, 
you know, classical transcendental subjective theories and the theological theories, in a certain way, I, I can say, well, all of the, the above. I mean, that's all the Greek philosophers were catching. They were catching a part of it, but they didn't have God. They they just had they were observing order in the universe, but didn't see that there was something behind that order. And uh, and we have biblical revelation to tell us that. So uh, let's see that. So, um, well, I guess I'm just. I'm just talking. I, I'm not interviewing. I'm asking you to agree with me. No, you're 100%. <laughs> and I think that's the great value of, in the article, I eventually moved to Jonathan Edwards. And the great power of Edwards is that in some ways he was a great synthesizer. And he synthesizes all of these theories. Now, now whether he did it knowingly or, or whether it was just kind of the great pool of intellectual and philosophical thought that he had, I'm not sure. But his theory of beauty actually combines the classical theory with the transcendental theory, with the subjective theory, and the theological theory. And what he defines beauty as is God's consent to God. Or, uh, and the word consent in Edwards doesn't really mean what we mean today when we think of permission or something like that. Consent for Edwards means something like loving union, um, where, where two things are drawn to each other and uh, voluntarily combine and unite. So he said beauty must be ultimate being's consent or cordial consent to being, meaning existence, which is God, God's loving union with himself. Now, what he's done there is he's combined both the classical theory, which talks about harmony, symmetry, except here the harmony and symmetry is not shapes or sounds, it's persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons that are in absolute harmony with each other. He's also taken something of the transcendental theory because truth, goodness, and beauty are related to each other, and in another place, he says, true virtue is beauty. Uh, and true virtue is another way of saying true goodness. Uh, and there he's saying this beautiful consent, this beautiful loving union is the ultimate morality. It's the ultimate truth of God's loving um, consent to himself. And then he takes even the subjective theory of pleasure because his whole system is built on the idea that the beauty of a human being is made up of our love for God's beauty, that a beautiful soul will love what is beautiful, that the uglier your soul, the more you detest what is beautiful, and therefore sin deforms us and makes us uh, repelled at the beauty of God, whereas the growing sense of, of holiness, God's sanctification of us, makes us love what God loves. So we find pleasure and delight in who God is. And this becomes the, the subjective theory where beauty is all at once objective in God, but it is subjectively appropriated in a beautiful soul. So a beautiful soul will love the beauty of God. And, of course, the whole thing is a theological theory. Uh, it's a theory which combines both the being of God, the attributes of God, and the triunity of God in, in one 
really effective theory. So we, in Edwards, even though it's a kind of a complex idea to get our minds around, what he's really done for us is he's simplified it by giving us this great summary of beauty uh, by saying God's own love for his glory and love for himself is the deepest and most ultimate reality, the, the greatest beauty of all. You know, as you're talking, I, I, it reminded me, especially that word consent. So, uh, you know, uh, in Ephesians, the the uh, Paul pictures marriage as the pic or with the unity of Christ in the church. So, so there's in the ideal of marriage, uh, two people come to a man and a woman, mm -hmm. make sure, sure we say that come together and, and, and it's a beautiful thing. It really is. They're, they are consenting to one another, but they are consenting to one another before God. They are agreeing with the truth of God. They're not, they're not consenting adults. They're consenting together in a covenant. So, so they're agreeing with God's truth and morality. They're, they are eschewing all others. They are, you know, so now that's the ideal. Our lived reality is not always the ideal, you know, uh, uh, because our, because we're sinners. But that, I think if we think about that, we can capture a little bit about what we mean by this theory right. of beauty. Right. And I think what, what's really helpful here is what Edwards is pushing us to see is that the greatest form of beauty is actually uh, a personal kind of beauty. In other words, it is this consent between beings, between persons that we tend to think of beauty as colors and shapes and, and incredible vistas. And we're very visual. So we, we always, when we hear the word beauty, we tend to think of something we'll see. What Edwards is pushing us to do is to say, no, all of those things are just shadows and signs. They point us to ultimate beauty. Ultimate beauty is the symmetry of wills, of individual volition. And when those wills are in such incredible consent as pictured in, in man and wife, when you have that amazing union, you have the most beautiful thing of all, which is love. Uh, it's, it's hearts and minds in perfect symmetry. And Edward says that the final and ultimate place of this is the three ultimate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Everything echoing out from that is, uh, as it were, an emanation of that beauty that God creates and beginning with human persons. But then everything else in creation where we see this harmony and the symmetry it's supposed to just simply be a shadow of personal union, uh, which is the final and ultimate beauty of all. Right. So that's really, I, I mean, I we could uh, get quite Pentecostal <laughs> thinking about these things. <laughs> but <laughs> but the uh, uh, I want to talk, go back to this idea of subjective um, beauty, which is which is really the try. Uh, uh, triumphed in in our Western thinking these days, and but really, I think the triumph, or maybe I'll ask you. I'll put oh, getting a little feedback there. Something going Usually on in your is. neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. All right. So so it's a different yep. world, I guess, than 
than what we're we're used to. Anyhow, all right. Well, uh, uh, so on this subjectiveness, and I, I'm, what I'm thinking about here is that if your emphasis is on subjective beauty, sort of exclusively, as you say, that becomes very relativistic. So, uh, how does human fallenness fit into sort of a dominant, a, a subjective theory of beauty that is the mm. dominant theory? Yeah, great question. I, th I think Paul already gives us some of the answers in Romans 1 when he says, because man did not want to retain God uh, or glorify him as God, you need to want to retain God in his knowledge. So he exchanged the glory of God, the glory of the creator for the creature. So we can already see Paul recording for us an exchange, a refusal to acknowledge ultimate beauty that lies very deep in our depravity, uh, uh, a refusal to give God his place. And, you know, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge, we can say that having a right posture before God is certainly going to be one of the, the ways that we recognize beauty rightly. Uh, it's not to say that someone who's not rightly related to God cannot see beauty or acknowledge it or acknowledge secondary beauty, which is the term Edwards uses, which is the, the beauty of created things, sights, sounds, even ideas. Uh, an, an unbeliever can certainly see those things, and in many ways, perhaps they become signposts towards the ultimate, towards God's uh, glory. They don't disclose the gospel. They don't reveal uh, truth in an explicit form, but they are definitely echoes and signs and pointers. Um, what Edward says, and I think rightly, is that you can only see primary beauty, that is the glory of God, with a new heart when the gospel has transformed you, because it is at that point that you love what is lovely. You love God for who he is. Uh, until that moment of salvation, of regeneration comes to you, there's going to, there, there's a war within to not give God his place. So the ultimate source of beauty has to be excluded. You know, Romans 1.18, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, we don't want the beauty of God to come to the forefront of our minds because it means yielding to him and submitting to him and loving and serving him. Um, and until God changes this moral madness in our minds and hearts and persuades us and shows us his glory and draws us, you know, we just remain implacably autonomous and refusing that which is best. Um, you know, that's what makes sin so ridiculous yeah. is we're refusing what is most beautiful and yeah. what's best for us. Yes, absolutely. Well, that's really tremendous. We've had quite a discussion on the meaning of beauty. And uh, I'm looking at our timer here, and it looks like we're about uh, – uh, at the point where in uh, some of the blog or podcasts I listen to, they'll pause <laughs> for a commercial and go to part two. So, <laughs> so I think we'll, we'll have a little pause. I'll thank you for this discussion. And we're actually probably going to have part two mm -hmm. as a second uh, sure. podcast. So uh, that's how we'll do this. Well, thank, thank you very much, David, for this discussion. And we'll pause for a second and then we'll come back for part two. This has been the Proclaim and Defend podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a good review. 
If you want to learn more about the FBFI, check out our website at fbfi.org or our blog, Proclaim and Defend, at proclaimanddefend.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Proclaim and Defend podcast. Thank you.